This is the business of sports. We're in a situation that we haven't dealt with in modern times. The pandemic here has really accelerated the investments that we've been advocating for for years. Almost everyone out there is hoping that there's some kind of return to normal by August, September. In-depth conversations with the leaders in the sports industry. Who wants to be the sacrificial lambs that shows up at the first big major sporting event? We're part of something much bigger than sport right now, and the health and safety of our stakeholders is what's most important. Every moment, I think we're all from a business perspective thinking about the impact that the virus is having across the country. Bloomberg Business of Sports from Bloomberg Radio. Hello, I'm Jason Kelly. And I'm Mike Lynch. Over the next hour, we're going to explore the big money issues in the world of sports as we do every week and talk to some of the biggest players in the industry. Later on in the show, we're going to talk with Atlanta Hawks CEO Steve Coonan. He's going to tell us about this bold initiative that the Hawks have taken around voter access. He's also going to talk about the return to play for the NBA and so much more. So Mike, this week, you know, another big week in sports. I feel like stopping and starting all over again every week. It's the same story. Uh, And yet deals tend to get done or still are getting done, I should say. Um, The PGA, this was an interesting move. Basically, Fox saying to NBC, you can have it. Unprecedented. In my lifetime, I can't ever remember a network opting out of a deal with a pending championship coming up. Uh, Fox signed a 12-year deal for a billion dollars, I believe six years ago, and here they are now handing it over to NBC, and uh, Fox is still going to be on the hook for a little bit bit of amount of money, but... You know, apparently their fall schedule with college and professional football is too vital to them uh, to jeopardize and uh, turn viewers away to watch the U.S. Open. And NBC welcomely uh, just opened their arms and took it back. Yeah, I'm fascinated by this because, as you say, you do not see, I mean, as hard as these networks fight for rights and as much as they've paid up, I mean, huge, you know, hundreds of millions, billions of dollars at stake here. I mean, it just shows you to some extent, like, how upside down the world is. (laughs) And hats off to Joe Buck, who actually said, you know, Jim Nance, Dan Hicks, and Mike Tirico all call golf better than I do. But I'm very proud of our production crew and moving on. You never hear an icon in the broadcasting business say that somebody does a job much better than I do. You never hear that. And uh, I thought that was kind of frank and candid. And I remember last year during the U.S. Open, it was at Pebble Beach, where Jim Nance lives, Buck invited Nance to walk out of his house down the fairway and join him in the broadcast booth, and he did. And I thought that was kind of a pretty good gesture. So I uh, tip of the hat to Joe Buck. So you watch more golf than I do. I mean, do you agree as a viewer and as someone who knows more than enough to be dangerous about uh, broadcast? I mean, is is NBC better at this? They're much better at it than yeah. Fox is. Uh, when Fox first did it, their color guy was Greg Norman. He was horrible. They replaced him with Paul Azinger. Brad Faxon is a rock-solid uh, broadcaster for them. But in terms of an overall team and people out on the course, and, you know, remember, NBC is partners with the Golf Network, with yep. NBC Sports Network, and we got the new Peacock Network. So the platform for... I mean, you're going to see wall-to-wall, round-the-clock coverage from the first t- first person teeing off at 7 o'clock in the morning right till they shut the lights out on Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, and practice rounds as well. So for the golfer and the golf fan, this is a win-win situation. And do you feel like it behooves NBC to continue investing here now that they've sort of gotten this uh, this gift of sorts? Do you expect them to do more? 
I well, they, they right now under their uh, USGA umbrella, they have a bunch of championships now. They have the amateur championships, they have the women's championship, the senior open, uh, and it's a pretty good satchel of, of golf of a golf product for them. And you couple that with what they have on uh, Sunday night football, yeah. and they're, they're positioned pretty well with uh, some great content. Yeah, it's interesting, too, to think about, and we talked about this uh, when we were uh, breaking down the match part two, I also wonder if they're going to take a page from what we've been seeing so far with the return of golf and maybe do some innovative things around, you know, miking up more players, some different camera shots. I mean, they it feels like there's some experimentation going on in terms of how you broadcast all the sports, but golf included. Yes, and they have these different platforms to do it. So if they can try on a Thursday morning, let's say they have it on the NBC Sports Network or the Golf Channel, and it's just not working, they can dump it or they can tweak it by the time they get to their prime time yeah. uh, over-the-air programming on, on NBC. Yeah, it's interesting, too. I mean, it's an interesting moment for, for golf, and we, we talked about this yeah. with the commissioner, that they're going to get some eyeballs that maybe they wouldn't have gotten, especially over the next couple of weeks. You know, we've got this little period now until the end of July where there's not a lot of sports on, so more and more people tuning in to golf. They are, and they're getting a little bit of drama. The last two matches went to a playoff situation, so uh, they they uh, they took actually last Sunday there was a rain delay, and Dustin Johnson won by one shot. But the week before there was a playoff, and so uh, there there's some personalities emerging. Some people who are dipping their toe in the in the golf water as a golf fan might be hooked. Who knows? Yeah. But they're they're doing they're doing a good job of it, and they knew they had to do a good job of it because they were first up with the most eyeballs. All right, so let's switch topics if we can to a just a bummer, I think, to use a technical term yeah. for both uh, you and me. No minor league baseball. Not going to happen this year. So of those 160 teams, uh, it's an estimated that half of those teams will not be around next year. And they are the lifeblood of so many of these small towns across America who rely solely on billboard on the outfield fences advertising and the paid gate other than that there's no tv contracts no big radio contracts to fuel these teams and some people are even suggesting that they should go to to congress and ask for a bailout everyone else is getting a bailout should minor league baseball get a bill are they an essential business are they an integral part of the united states economy yeah, America's pastime. I mean, it's it, there is an argument to be made for sure, especially when you talk about, as you just did very well, the economic implications on these small towns. You know, growing up in the South, uh, you know, it, it was you go into these smaller towns in Georgia and Alabama uh, and elsewhere, and certainly you think about the Cape League. I saw Mike Barnacle uh, writing about it. You know, your colleague up there uh, in the yep. Boston area. I mean, this. It is part of the fabric of summer in in many cases. I, I just find it so sad. It is. The Boston Red Sox AAA team for a long time has been the Pawtucket Red Sox. They're yeah. just over the border in Rhode Island. They now are done for the first time in 137 years. 137 years. Yeah. And sadly, the Red Sox are moving their AAA affiliate to Worcester, Massachusetts. So the Paw Sox didn't even have a chance to say goodbye and have a grand finale in the final game at their stadium and thank all the loyal fans that have been coming. And they're just uh, one of the many, many casualties of this decision. And uh, it, it's really, really sad. I mean, if you love, as you said, you go to a minor I went to a minor league baseball game uh, when I was uh, working for TV up here, and they had a promotion 
uh, had pregnant women sitting in one section, and the first woman that went into labor during the game would get a year's supply of diapers. And you should have seen. <laughs> <laughs> so we're going around with the cameras, and I'm, inter- I'm interviewing this woman. I said, "You feeling anything?" I said, "I think I feel a little kick right now." And of course, all the husbands are going, "Honey, honey, come on! What can I do?" And right. and, and, and nobody went into labor that night. There must have been 25 pregnant women up there. But those are the type of things. And, and I know we've all agreed that the most ingenious and clever marketing people are those that work for minor league baseball. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. Well, everybody go out and watch or stay in, I should say. Watch, download, rent, whatever you need to do, Bull Durham this weekend, and uh, say, have a moment, pour one out for minor league baseball. Uh, man, uh, the economics of this virus and the implications really continue to wreak havoc on sports, that's for sure. You bet. It's uh, it's really, really sad. It's part of Americana. It's part of it. And, and every single Major League Baseball player played on a minor league team at one time or another yeah. in, their, in their careers coming up. Every single one of them. Nobody goes from the high school uh, right to uh, Major League Baseball. Up next, we are speaking with Atlanta Hawks CEO Steve Coonan. I have known this guy for a long time. What a treat to catch up with you, Steve, at a time when everybody wants to know what's going on with the NBA, what's going on in Atlanta, and most pointedly, some news happening this week with what you guys, the Hawks, are doing when it comes to voting uh, there in Atlanta. Tell us what's going on. We have um, offered our arena, State Farm Arena, which is about 700,000 square feet, to the Fulton County Commission to host voting for both the August runoff and the general election. And we will be the home of early voting for Fulton County, which is a county that has almost a million registered voters. Um, In early voting in Georgia, you're allowed to vote in any super precinct. So we will take our full-time staff and turn them into full-time poll workers. One of the difficulties Georgia has had is that they aren't volunteer training, but maybe an hour before the polls open. And we're going to train our people who are professionals, the sports business, to be professionals in the voting business. They'll train for a week. We will open our doors. We will socially distant. We will allow for handicap. We will allow um, for any kind of needs. And the biggest need is for an efficient timely way to vote and hopefully that's what we're going to deliver to the city of atlanta and fulton county steve take me through the uh, the process here because uh, i'm a boston guy and if this idea surfaced here in boston it would take a decade to get it through all the appropriate people that need to put the stamp on it who'd you have to deal with who gave the green light and were there roadblocks or any impediments actually it moved pretty quickly I kind of had the idea when I was watching the protests the first couple of nights because they were literally at the street intersection of where our arena sits, and that was the epicenter of the protest in downtown Atlanta. And protests have to lead to change, and change is very difficult. And in my mind, the one thing that I thought we could help influence immediately was voting. And so because of the unique structure of the NBA season this year, that we're not starting our season in mid-October, as traditionally done, but in sometime in December, our building was open and available. So 
I had a conversation with our coach, who is Coach Lloyd Pierce, who has been leading the Coaches Association on um, social justice and has been very, very active. To bounce it off of him, he liked the idea. Our owner, Tony Ressler, liked the idea. So I placed a call to Fulton County Chairman Rob Pitts, who I had known through my career. And he called me back the next day and said, can we tour the arena? And they walked in the arena, and within an hour, we had a deal, and we did a press conference 48 hours later. You had to have been surprised, Steve, that it moved that fast. I mean, you've been doing this for a long time. You know, it's interesting. I I really applaud the Fulton County folks. They were very humble. They said they're going to move from worst to first. They understood the dilemma they were in. In fact, their head of voter registration said, we didn't know how we would solve this problem. So when somebody thinks you're a good guy going in, and (laughs) candidly, we offered them everything. We're going to pay our employees. We're going to make the parking free. We've got MARTA, which is rapid transit in Atlanta, to reopen its station, which is 25 feet from our door. We gave them a turnkey solution because this was something we felt passionately about. And, yes, I was stunned that it moved so quickly. And I just think, you know, good timing met a good opportunity with a good solution. For us, it gives us a real opportunity to do something to help affect change. And for Fulton County, it gives them a building that has everything you need that you're not going to find in a classroom or a library. You know, great connectivity and Wi-Fi, a highly educated, trained young staff, spacing for social distancing. We gave them our practice court for a month with a secure, with 24-hour security. It's where they're going to count all the mail-in and absentee ballots. So we're literally turning our building from State Farm Arena to, and like a good neighbor, State Farm is there, State Farm <laughs> Election Central. How did I do on that plug? That's good. It's pretty good. Pretty good. They're going to be happy. You know, sometimes going and voting to, a, as you said, a school or a library or a fire station, you could stand in line for a long, long time. If, there, if it's inclement weather, uh, it discourages people. But, you know, I, I've been to that facility. I'm a Boston guy, but I spent a week down there at the Super Bowl. It's a great facility, public transportation. This might become such a pleasurable experience that you might be asked to do it every time there's a major election, at least every four years. So are you ready for that? Well, I would love that if it became a national NBA holiday and every arena in the league did it. Yeah. I mean, have you heard from other – I mean, I know that this is brand new, but I have to think this is an idea that could catch on across the league, Steve. I talked to six teams. We have a network of NBA presidents. We work together. Even though we compete on the court, we're business partners off. And there's only 30 of these jobs in the world, so we talk quite a bit. So I had multiple cities um, call me, and multiple cities are doing voter registration, and they've already got their programs into place, so they're going to look. You know, if you own your building, your building is going to be dark from most likely concerts and um, the start of hockey and basketball are being delayed. It's a great opportunity, and I think one of the keys is through our owner, Tony Ressler, and his generosity We've been paying all our employees, yeah. and so by, by treating people well, now we need something back from our staff, and they couldn't be more excited to participate. So they're going from full-time 
sports employees, Hawks employees, to full-time poll workers, which really hasn't happened. So, Steve, you know, we were talking about the NBA, and, and you put it very well that there are only 30 uh, of these jobs, and you guys talk all the time. It does strike me that the NBA has been more progressive than most leagues in terms of activism, in terms of reacting, and maybe being proactive around a lot of social issues. A, do you agree? And B, why is that? Uh, I, I absolutely agree. I, I think if you look at, I think it has to start on two levels. I think the first is ownership structure. You know, Adam Silver, who is progressive and innovative and a phenomenal leader, works for owners. And if you look at the ownership in our league, it's not generational ownership like you see in the NFL. I mean, you have wonderful families who have owned a football team since the start. Here you've got this next generation of private equity and investors and Steve Ballmer and people who are, you know, well-versed in the needs of community. When you buy a sports team, Mark Cuban wrote this, and in fact, he wrote a letter to Ballmer that was great. It says, you don't own the team, you're just the steward of the team. The team is owned by your community. Tony calls our team a community asset. And I think sports are the great unifier. One of the reasons that I left the TV industry and went and ran my team in my town was because I thought we could do more to unite and excite the city of Atlanta than any policy or politician. And I think sports has the ability, and we're kind of seeing it with our announcement, to um, solve problems and create um, opportunity in a very unique way. But I think our young ownership structure with people who are invested in their communities and also understanding our players are our product and our players want to have a voice and our players are our partners. We share our revenue virtually 50-50. I think it's 50.1, but for rounding sake, let's go with 50-50. And they want to do more than basketball. We want to be more than a basketball team. So I think the aspirations line up perfectly. In Orlando, Steve, there's going to be on the floor uh, painted on all the courts that are playing Black Lives Matter. Um, will that carry over when to, if we come to a next season in the NBA? And could we see visible signage of standing up for social justice in the 30 arenas around the NBA? I can't comment okay on whether it carries over, but I think the idea of strong pro-social statements and positionings and reinforcement of ideals absolutely makes sense. You know, like I said, I haven't even discussed that with anybody. I I saw that and thought it was fantastic, and I think it's a huge statement. And I'm very, very, very proud to be part of the NBA when they make statements like that. You know, Steve, I I do want to ask you, and, you know, there is something, and I grew up in Atlanta, as as you know, that you and I, as I mentioned at the top, known each other for for a long time. I mean, it feels like it's not an accident that Atlanta, uh, in in good ways and bad, is right at the center of all of these conversations. And I do wonder, in your mind, having been uh, a business leader there for a long time, how notable it is that Atlanta is the first to to make this step that you're talking about today? Well, yeah, you have to understand Atlanta really and truly is the cradle of the civil rights movement. And 
one of the interesting things about our business, one of the one of the ideas that we brought when we took over the Hawks and turned it around was to market and reflect our city. Um, our attendance is about 45% African-American. The number two team in the NBA is Washington, around 8%. So we're six times larger than any other NBA city with our attendance. And our arena reflects it. We have several African-American entrepreneur restaurateurs that we've put into business in our building, which has led to great exposure for them. We are the only sports facility in America who celebrates the barbershop, which is a huge part of African-American culture, with sports being the conversation. Killer Mike, a local rapper who has done, and community activist, is in the barbershop business, and we have the um, swag shop, swag standing for shave, wash, and groom, perched over the court, and you can get a haircut and watch the game. Um, four-tier barbershop in the arena. And so it's an homage to the city that we're in. So it's part of our DNA is, you know, connecting with people and building physically, like the swag shop in our building, and building courts and community services and, you know, feeding seniors and doing the things that a great organization that's part of a great city comes natural. So, Steve, we were talking about Atlanta and its history in terms of civil rights, both the heritage, but also in this in this current moment. You know, I also have got to ask you about the NBA uh, at this moment. We're, we think, a few weeks away from going to Orlando, having this completely unique situation of getting back to basketball in a bubble. What do we need to know at this point? What do you know about what it's going to look and feel like for a fan? I think it's going to be a basketball fan's dream. You're going to have at least four games stacked a day. Um, we really will see how many people work at home. All the, all the CEOs who made pronouncements how well their companies have worked, we'll see. Um, we'll see. There hasn't been anything but bold and the beautiful to watch during the day. This is sort of like when the World Cup happens, right? And exactly. all of a sudden you see uh, productivity plummet. I was part of the team that brought March Madness to Turner. And then we ran on TBS, um, True TV, and TNT. And we would just go look at the viewership during the daytime, both especially digitally on the computer, and realize that productivity in the United States was headed down, and we were the cause. It was a good feeling. <laughs> <laughs> so, Steve, t- tell us and, and tell all our listeners out there how your experience with Turner, with working for Coca-Cola, has prepared you for this job as CEO of, of one of 30 teams in the, one of the greatest leagues on the planet. Well, it's interesting. I, I, I've been very fortunate in my career that at Coca-Cola, um, I, we caught a wave of growth that was unbelievable. We, we literally opened up, while I was there, China, Eastern Europe, and India, which were three billion consumers. Um, and, and what I really learned at Coke was about creating brands and how to manage and create brands. And in 1999, ironically, I was at the opening of Phillips Arena, which is now State Farm Arena, and talking to the president of Turner, who owned both the building and the hockey and the hockey team, the Thrashers, and the baseball team, the Braves, and the Hawks. And he was telling me that 
cable was getting ready to explode to 500 channels, and they had a problem that TBS and TNT, the cable operators, were calling T1 and T2, and they didn't value them because they weren't distinctive. You know, History Channel, you know what it stands for, Food Network. Probably a pretty safe bet it's going to be around food. <laughs> but TBS and TNT were named for the creator, and I don't mean the one in the sky, I mean Ted Turner. And so they were a bit of alphabet soup. So they offered me a job to come in and really, which was an unusual and bold pick on their part because I wasn't a TV programmer. I was a brand guy. But we took those networks and we turned TBS into a comedy network and TNT into a drama network. We know drama and very funny. And they became two of the top networks for a decade, either number one or number two, jockeying between them. But it also gave advertisers an easy handle to think about buying them. If you wanted to talk to, you know, more mature women who wanted television that makes them think and feel, you would buy TNT, We Know Drama. If you wanted to talk to young audiences who use um, television as their Prozac to help them unwind, if you will, it was TBS. And when you look at the success of Netflix and Hulu and the spending on Friends, Seinfeld, Everybody Loves Raymond, Big Bang Theory, we had all of those on TBS. The difference is we had them with commercials. And so the same programming that we ran on TBS is literally the office is the most watched programming on streamers. Yeah. And so what does that tell you? I mean, ultimately, the NBA is amazing live content, but also so much more. And this takes me back to what we were talking about earlier in the show with, you know, the players being very out front, very socially active, their own brands. I do wonder how that appreciation for brands has translated into dealing with players who are increasingly brands in and of themselves, Steve. It's, it's very important. You know, as we were doing programs around COVID to help the food insecurity in Atlanta and feeding, talking to several players, they wanted to do it through a lens that fit their brand. They didn't want to just write a check. They wanted it to be something that they could be attached to that made sense for them. And I do think that brand sophistication is everything today. You see that in your recent piece with Maverick Carter and LeBron. They know exactly what his brand is and what fits and what doesn't fit. Steve, that's always been a face or a number of faces of, of the NBA, going back to when they first exploded on uh, television. Uh, Larry Bird, Magic Johnson, of course, there was uh, Michael Jordan, there was Kobe Bryant. Is the face of the NBA right now LeBron James, or are there multiple faces of the NBA for brands? Well, I mean, LeBron is front and center, and he's on Mount Rushmore right now. But it's interesting. Everybody you named was part of pop culture. You know, you saw Jordan's Nike commercials when you watched Friends on NBC. You saw Kobe's puppet spots. Kobe actually was a spokesperson for us for Sprite. Um, I signed him at 18 years old. It was the second commercial contract he signed. $35,000 if we only used them in L.A. and 150 if we used them in the U.S. Those rates didn't stay very long. <laughs> um, but we used these guys, and these guys used us to help build their pop culture credibility. And I think what you see today 
is you see athletes with music artists, you see them producing content. I, I would say there's at least a dozen guys in the league who have production companies in the NBA, and Tom Brady just opened one, you know, as an NFL player. And so they're planning their lives past the playing field. And what NBA players have is incredible access and platform. And they're incredibly sophisticated and savvy in how they use them. But LeBron is the biggest star. But the formula, if there was such a thing, is great social media. It's having a national shoe contract. And it's also being available to kind of be part of things that people care about. And like what's happening today with voting and with Black Lives Matter, you're seeing players front and center. And I think it's fantastic. Well, and to that point, Steve, I mean, sort of to tie it all up, and and I think about player activism, I think about what LeBron is doing with More Than a Vote, which is very much in line with exactly what you're doing, I think, I dare say, with the precinct, the, the voting precinct deal. I mean, this has the potential to alter in a positive way the way democracy is executed. I actually don't think I'm overstating it to say that when (laughs) you talk about voter access and voter suppression being something that we're really talking a lot about. That feels like a new moment for sports. Well, I, I agree. And we have the facilities to do this. You know, Trey Young's part of um, LeBron's movement, and Lloyd Pierce, who is our head coach, is an assistant coach on the Olympic team. He spoke to 30 coaches last night as, as they built a coaches association focusing on these issues. And I'm hoping out of that some of the aspirations that we're talking about come true. You know, Steve, uh, way back when uh, Charles Barkley said, I'm not a role model, I don't want to be a role model, I shouldn't be expected to be a role model. What has changed with today's NBA athlete who want to be role models and want to be front and center and are the exact opposite of what Charles Barkley said about himself? I was very fortunate to work with Charles at Turner um, for a long time, and Nike made a T-shirt that they sent out 10 of them, and picture of Charles screaming, and it says, I am not a role model. And underneath him is a retirement picture of the late commissioner, David Stern, who says, I am a role model. Charles is a role model. That was an ad campaign. But his point was, I don't raise your children, you do. I'm not the biggest influence in their lives. If I am, you've done something wrong. And I think these players can reinforce the values that they care about. I think they're all role models, but they shouldn't be the parent. They shouldn't be the person who helps shapes and mold these people. They should be part of the team that helps shapes and molds and shows potential in everybody. But role models should be from business, from media, from all walks of life, so we create more opportunities for more people. So, Steve, I I do want to wrap up by asking you a a question that sort of spans your career in many ways. We've talked a a little bit about it, you know, from Coke to Turner to to the NBA now. And I think notably, uh, so many of those jobs being in Atlanta, and we've talked about the the heritage of Atlanta and and obviously something that I care deeply about. I I do wonder, and and you were nice enough to mention the, the story that I wrote about 
LeBron and, and Maverick and, and what they're doing. But one of the things that Maverick said in the course of that that really stuck with me was it's important that we do things to ensure that this isn't just a, a moment in time. And I do wonder, as you talk to other CEOs, as you think about your network of executives and friends in Atlanta and, and well beyond, are you seeing something that feels different right now in terms of the action and activity that we're seeing around equality and around social justice? I see a lot of movement and activity. I see brands like Aunt Jemima and Uncle Ben's actually changing, and, and I think that's extraordinarily positive. But I also have spent a long time at big companies, and big companies aren't nimble, nor are they risk takers. So I, I worry that at this moment, people will write a check, people will make a contribution, people will create, you know, some material, but you've got to embed it in the DNA. It's got to be part of everyday life. And you look at the number of, you know, African-American and female CEOs, and it's dreadful, board members, and it's horrible. And you have to say, Change organizationally and employment starts at the top. And if we're not going to make those changes, then it, then it is a moment. It's not a movement. And I hope it turns into a movement by making the real systemic changes and creating the opportunities that everyone is equal. And I'm not 100% bought into the fact that America can change. I think America is the most awake it has been in a long time. And I think being home with the pandemic has been a blessing for people to be forced to pay attention. But I'm hopeful, but I'm concerned that it's not going to be, you know, a long-term behavior unless it's reinforced every day. Right. Well, Steve Coonan, what a treat to catch up with you and congratulations on this deal. I, I don't think I overstate it uh, when I say that this could be, you know, truly a game changer. And, you know, as an Atlantan, I'm proud of what you're doing. And uh, I'm really excited to see what happens and, and the real change uh, that could come from this. So thank you so much for spending some time with us. My pleasure. Our, our hashtag, our tagline is true to Atlanta. And um, I'm really proud that we were able to deliver for the city. So thank you, Jason. Thank you, Michael. It's wonderful to be on with you guys. So, Mike, really interesting guy. I mean, I've known him and known of him for a long while. He's got one of these careers that you almost can't make up, that if you were in college and you said, so I want to work for one of the best-known companies in the world, then I want to go run a broadcast <laughs> company, and then if I'm not quite done, I'm going to run a basketball team. I mean, Wow. I'm glad this is audio only and not video because I was sitting here with my mouth open listening to him. And then when he finished his answer, I said, oh, I'm supposed to ask him a question. Right. Because that, that's how enchanted I was yeah. with him talking about every subject that we brought up with him. There wasn't one dead moment in that interview. and Everything he said fascinated me and grasp my attention, and I'm sure your takeaway is probably the same as mine. This idea of turning uh, State Farm Arena into a polling place for the runoff primary in August and then the general election on November 3rd is absolutely a spectacular idea. It's safe. It has great transportation. It's big. It's open. Uh, if there's bad weather, you can stand in line inside the building. Yeah. And I think, if you're, as you said, I think it's going to be a model, and going forward, I see arenas around the country blocking out 
at least every four years when the presidential election comes, blocking out that day and make it a polling place. Yeah. I mean, and it also really speaks to, I had the exact same takeaway. I think this is a huge deal. And I also think it's not an accident, as we talked about, that this is the NBA, you know, that it took an NBA team to do this because I think by virtue of the players and by virtue of the relationship that the players have with the league and and he made a really good point about the ownership ownership matters and i think we're learning that i think we've learned it in the nba and we've learned it you know maybe in a, in a contrarian way when you look at mlb and and even the nfl to some extent but uh this is why the nba is so popular in in many cases because they're very well run and candidly you have people like steve coonan running the teams Yes, and as he said, uh, this is where the civil rights movement began with Martin Luther King back in the 1960s in the city of Atlanta. Yeah, so proud of my hometown for this one. All right, you've been listening to be. Bloomberg. <laughs> yeah, I know. I mean, we can't, we don't win championships. As as Coonan as pointed out before we got rolling, you have me on championships by far and always will. But I'll, t- I'll take this one as a, a different sort of win. You've been listening to Bloomberg Business of Sports. We're here each and every week at the same time, plus online, wherever you get your podcasts. You can hear extended versions of this and all of our interviews. Plus, catch those Mondays, Wednesdays, and Thursdays. That's when they drop. I'm Jason Kelly on Twitter at Jason Kelly News. And I'm Mike Lynch. You can find me on Twitter at LynchyWCBB. You're listening to Bloomberg Business of Sports from Bloomberg Radio around the world. <laughs>